Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Many people make a practice of reading through the Bible in one or two year cycles. However, it is easy to get lost when reading through the prophets, especially if the context of what was taking place in the lives of God's people isn't known. Recently, I took a deep dive into the prophet Jeremiah, and with the help of Chalcedon President Mark Rushduni's sermons on this book of the Bible, I have come to the conclusion that what is taking place in the West today has many parallels with what was happening in Judah prior to the captivity in Babylon. While there were many reasons for the captivity, one of the major ones was the idolatry of the people, or Baal worship. What's more, many thought they were in God's good graces when in fact they were on the verge of destruction. Mark has agreed to explore with me today some of the manifestations of Baal worship in our day. Mark, thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Andrea. So explain, if you would, briefly, I mean, I realize you did 50 sermons on this, the context of the book of Jeremiah and how Baal worship factored into God's extreme judgment. Uh, The book of Jeremiah was actually taking place near the end of the southern kingdom of Judah, just before its destruction, and it extends to just after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. But the whole issue actually began much earlier, and it probably began with the influence of paganism when they were still in Egypt, because the people were constantly being told they had to rid themselves of their false worship and being warned against the idolatry. And we see that, uh, in fact, they did fall into idolatry, of which Baalism was one form uh, very quickly and uh, repeatedly over the years. So you make a point in your sermons that Baalism was not just one God, it was many gods, and the people of Judah at the time of Jeremiah's prophecy really thought, I mean, they would pray to Jehovah, but Jehovah was one of many gods rather than the one true God, correct? Yes, uh, well, that was characteristic of the, you might call it the theology of, of Baal worship. Baal worship was not the worship of one god. There were actually many Baalim. It's more proper to refer to it to Baal worship and the worship of the Baalim because there were many of these Baals that were worshipped. The word Baal is believed to be of Mesopotamian origin, but it means Lord. It can refer to power. Or force, it means one who possesses the owner. So there were actually many Baals being worshipped. This was really introduced in a very powerful way that was known before to uh, the northern kingdom when Ahab married Jezebel, who was from the Phoenician city of Sidon. She was the uh, princess of Sidon. 
And so this marriage was, as uh, many marriages, was for diplomatic and political purpose. It was something of an alliance. And this brought Baal worship into the northern kingdom, which had already departed from the Jehovah, the worship of Jehovah, strictly speaking, because a few years earlier, when after the death of Solomon, the northern kingdom did not want their people going to Jerusalem, which was in Judah, in order to worship. So to keep them from worship in Jerusalem and this constant tendency to look to, to Jerusalem and Judah for leadership, he instituted two worship centers in the northern kingdom, which took the name Israel. And that was involved in a bull worship. And then under Ahab, you had the introduction of Baal worship. So when Baal worship was introduced, they had already had a, a long history of departing from proper worship of Jehovah. And what they did with Baal worship was they introduced the worship of these Baalim in addition to the worship of Jehovah. If you notice in the book of, uh, in, in the stories of, of Elijah and Elisha, when the kings of the, the northern kings were being confronted by Elijah and then Elisha, they referred to Jehovah, uh, not in disbelief, but only in the idea that why would Jehovah do this? Or you represent Jehovah as though it was perfectly legitimate for these prophets to represent Jehovah. What does he want from us? What problem does he have with us? But they were also worshiping these Baal. That, and this is what the prophets were condemning. You see, they were being syncretists. They were trying to include Jehovah in these, amongst these forces, these lords. And so what they were really doing is they were demoting Jehovah to just one of many gods. He was one of the Baalim. But in their view, their Baalim were more powerful, more direct, more immediate to the needs of the northern kingdom. And Jehovah was a god who had once done amazing things, but who seems to have been quiet. He was an older god. He was a, a somewhat dated and so they thought that they were being more inclusive in their religious ideas. They were incorporating ideas into their religion. And now Jehovah was a small part of it. They would still obey some of the, uh, the festivals and such. They did. So they never actually repudiated Jehovah. They just included him in their worship of Baal, but they thereby demoted him and made him just one god in the pantheon of gods. And after the fall of the northern kingdom, Baal worship then also became very prominent in the southern kingdom as well. So it would be wrong to consider Balaam gods the way an orthodox understanding of the Bible is with regards to God. The people of God are never in a position that we negotiate and we give a little and God gives a little, but that's how they viewed their Balaam. It was much more of a negotiation, an insurance policy, if you would. Well, that was true of, that's true of pagan religions by and large too, and especially 
those that are involved in idolatry. When you offer a sacrifice to an idol, it's not with the idea of worshiping him. It's the idea of appeasing him. And so they thought they were appeasing these different powers. And so therefore they thought that they were just doing the, the smart thing, that they were being a little bit more sophisticated in recognizing that there were many powers and that there were many powerful peoples around them. And then if they wanted to do business with them, they needed to, to acknowledge their deities to a, a certain extent. And of course, this acknowledgement and this apostasy uh, took over. And, and so you see in, in Ahab particularly, he was ready to, he wanted to destroy the prophets of Jehovah because he felt that uh, the Balaam was doing him more good than Jehovah was. I see. So you pointed out in your sermons that um, the people of Judah would have been surprised to think God was not happy with them. After all, the good King Josiah had made lots of reforms, had rediscovered the law and put things in place. So because it was a top-down change rather than coming from the hearts of the people, you point out that when Josiah dies, the people are more than ready to go back to what they were doing. Do you see any parallels in the attitude that the people had then that God wouldn't allow Jerusalem to be destroyed? God wouldn't allow another you know, empire to come in and take over? With some of the attitudes that people have today, some of your evangelical conservative Christians will say, oh, yes, yes, we do have problems. However, America can't fail. The West can't fall. Yes, that's a, been a very common theme throughout the millennia. The southern kingdom of Judah felt came to feel very secure. And we see this in the New Testament even that uh, Jerusalem was not going to fall. Of course, they had felt that before in Jeremiah's day, and it fell to the Babylonians. And part of their rebellion against Babylon, Babylon had basically uh, overcome them, and uh, they had capitulated at one point. And in Jeremiah's day, they had rebelled, and the Babylonians had sent an army to besiege Jerusalem, and, and that's when much of the book takes place, because he didn't want Jeremiah stirring the pot. He uh, was imprisoned at, at one point or put into some kind of a house arrest because they didn't want him communicating to the people. The, and the city was literally surrounded with Babylonian troops. Well, they felt that their rebellion might, would be successful and blessed by God because they figured, we're not like the northern kingdom. We still have the worship of God in the temple. We still go through the forms of worship and, devor- and, and devotion. And yet there was all sorts of things going on. Now, we find with, you mentioned uh, the reforms of Josiah. Josiah is highly praised for what he did. He tried very hard to get rid of all the false temples and so forth and to conduct many, many reforms, and he's highly praised. But what we find is when he died, rather suddenly, he went to battle and he died, the people very quickly returned to their old ways. 
He'd been able to do a lot, but it was all external because the people really were apostate by that time. And even though the king had forced them into reforms, reforms for which he was praised, it hadn't changed the people. And then when Jerusalem finally did fall, we see in the, the, the end of Jeremiah, Jeremiah warned the people, don't try to escape to uh, Egypt. Don't think that that will solve your problems. And yet the people did go to Egypt in fear of uh, the Babylonians. And when they were there, they began offering sacrifices to the false gods. And they said something that, that is, uh, tells you a lot about their religious state. When, when he, they were challenged for their idolatry, which may have been rather a nominal offering of things to the gods when in Egypt. And they were probably doing that so that they would be accepted by the Egyptians and they wouldn't be considered as outsiders. So, which is probably the same reason Ahab had introduced Baalism because he wanted trade with Phoenicia. And that was of great economic importance to the Northern Kingdom. Well, when Jeremiah challenged these people for their, for sacrificing or offering uh, incense or uh, prayers to the, the, these deities, they turned on him and they said, it's because we forsook the gods that these bad things are happening to us. They in effect said we never should have gone back to Jehovah worship. That was the problem. And so they, t- they blamed all of their problems not on their apostasy, not on God's judgment. After the fall of Jerusalem, they still wouldn't see that as the judgment of God on them. They said, it's all because of the prophets, all because of Josiah's religious reforms. We never should have gone that route. We would have been better off if we had stayed doing what we're doing. So it really showed how thoroughly evil they were and how little the reforms of Josiah really had on the the faith of the people. So apostasy sounds like that it's worse than if you never had the faith. If if you were a heathen, a pagan, and you knew nothing about Jehovah, you knew nothing about God's revelation, that's one thing. But if it turns out that you know you've been given this word, you've been given the scriptures which they had, that apostasy is far worse. Do you think that's a correct characterization? Oh, I think it's clearly what we're given in Scripture. Apostasy is a very fearful thing. And as we're told in the New Testament, judgment is uh, has to begin at the house of God. And therefore, the idea that God's going to protect us because we're not as bad as some people, or we have a, a Christian past or a Christian remnant, that's not necessarily true. And that certainly wasn't true in the case of uh, Judah in the 6th century BC when uh, Jerusalem fell. God did not protect them because of the temple or Jerusalem. He allowed them both to be destroyed and he allowed the people to go into slavery. And he then told them only a remnant of you is ever going to come back. And that's in fact what happened. At the time of Christ, there were more Jews in Mesopotamia still 500 years later, than there were in Palestine. And so, and then he did that same thing in our Lord's day, because uh, when Jerusalem uh, was destroyed, they still believed that somehow 
they were going to be saved because they had the temple, they had Jerusalem, and that was their, it became sort of an amulet for them. They superstitiously believed that as long as we have this, God's going to protect us because this is uh, necessary for the future of the faith. And yet God could dest- has destroyed Jerusalem twice in the past because he doesn't need it. He destroyed his temple permanently because he didn't need it. And yet the purposes of God go on. His kingdom goes on. But he's building a kingdom that is worldwide in its scope. And so people tend to look at the here and now. God needs us here now. And God's going to protect us despite ourselves because we're not all that bad. And so people constantly throughout history have failed to face up to the fact that, yes, they are liable for judgment and God doesn't need them for his uh, kingdom to move forward. As I continue reading the prophets, and I I do think it's important to know the context of when these men were speaking. I think that's why a lot of people will say, I just don't understand Isaiah. I just don't understand Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It's like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Well, in the Bible, we have narratives that go before the prophets, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. So there is a necessity to kind of put all this stuff together, but it's this idea that God owes his people something. And repeatedly through the words of the prophet, God says, this will happen to his people and the enemies of his people. So they will know that I am the Lord. And that seems to be a very profound thing, which I imagine, I know I would read past that and go, oh, okay, I am the Lord. But he really is making the point, I am the Lord, and there is no other, and I've given you commands, and what makes you think you're free to disregard them? Right, and and the the whole idea of Baal worship was they were the Baal meant One of the meanings of the word Baal was Lord. So when God says, they'll know that I am the Lord, he was saying that, in effect, I am the Lord, not these false powers to which you ascribe deity. I think today, because people tend to look at themselves as more advanced and not as unsophisticated as those who came before them, When they came out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and they constructed the golden calf or they have these Balaam, do the people who begin these things really think that these constructions that they have made themselves are God? Or is it just sort of a secondary way to say we're God? We determine right and wrong. Well, the and this is true of most idolatry. People know that an idol, a physical idol, is not a a deity of any kind. Some cases, for instance, like a Diana worship mentioned in in Acts, there was a whole industry in making these little idols, and people would take them, pick a a little image of Diana, and the more money you spent, the bigger bigger idol you could buy. Uh, But there were... Many, many thousands of these produced constantly, all these these various images. They knew that these didn't really represent the power they were talking about. They were only representative of power. And yet, 
in worshiping them physically or giving homage to them in any way, sometimes as little as offering a little bit of incense before them. Incense represents your prayers. In other words, you acknowledged that you were acknowledging that power. And so idolatry, we, we think of it as something for, we tend to think of idolatry as something only a very simple-minded person would conduct. But that was just the manifestation of how they acknowledged their belief in this power, this force that really controlled them. And again, another one of the meanings was a possessor. In other words, it, it was acknowledgement of sovereignty. And so it was, in fact, in direct opposition to uh, the need to acknowledge Jehovah as Lord. And by the way, you had mentioned uh, reading the, the Bible and the difficulty it is. The Bible is in a f- framework of history, and we sometimes can lose track of the history because some of the passages of Scripture are events that were happening and we don't always see the full context of them. It's helpful for Bible study to keep track of that history. You can buy Bibles that are chronological and, and it's, most of the Bible is fairly obvious where what's with the chronology is. There's a few books that were not in some legitimate debate about when they were written because they don't give any internal evidence as far as their date. They're more general. Others are very, very specific. But if you get a good conservative commentary with a a traditional arrangement, it can actually arrange some of the historical narrative along with the incidents, and you get a little bit more of an understanding of of, uh, why these events were taking place and what the world the politics were. Politics is a huge part of the biblical history because God used foreign powers to judge the people. So when the people were faithful, God protected them from the foreign powers that were threatening them. And when he wanted to judge them, he allowed them to come in and and devastate uh, the people. And so seeing that, I have used uh, one chronological bible called the the reese chronological bible it's helpful i'm sure there are others reese is r-e-e-s-e okay so one of the things that we see and it's not always clear what it means that at the time people were sacrificing their children to Baal, and i have heard an analogous statement today that when christian parents specifically turn their children over to be educated by statist educators who are at war with God, that they too are sacrificing their children to Baal. And some people take great offense to this, you know, yeah, passing my, my children through the fire. Right. It my wasn't dad, always that they were burning their children, was it? Right. Uh, my dad used that analogy, and it's actually more historically accurate than uh, you might want to believe. The Baal cults, were basically a form of fertility fertility cults. A modern equivalent of fertility cult is prosperity gospel. In other words, a fertility cult is something you did so that you would prosper, so that you would thrive. Very important to the uh, bell worship wares. They they saw the different powers of that enabled agriculture. You need 
the storms to come in and the rains in season because without extensive irrigation systems that could devastate a land if you had a drought. And so a particular area that was very agriculture would, their bale would be in charge of what they needed for their particular agricultural pursuits. When the Phoenicians worshipped their particular bale, it probably had more to do with uh, things like seafaring and uh, protection in, 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 in all their, their travels because they, they were the traders of the Mediterranean. And so the qualities ascribed to the various uh, Balaam were rather pragmatic. They were what the people wanted, what they needed. And then they looked to those powers rather than seeing them as coming from God and gifts of Jehovah and his blessing. They saw them as independent powers. And so it was for their own good. It was a form of the prosperity cult. And because Baal meant a lord or possessor or owner, when you passed your child through the fire, you were basically doing what we do in baptism. It was something of a covenantal right. You were giving that child to Baal and promising Baal that this child would be faithful to them. Now, passing a child through the fire, there are references in in the Bible to child sacrifice. That was probably not the the typical way of doing things, though it, it was done at time. And we know the Carthaginians, before they fell, were uh, when they lost uh, a major battle, they would sacrifice many, many children, and this uh, to to Baal. But but the most common type, when it, said, it refers to passing a child through Baal, was probably some sort of initiative or, or dedication, where there was uh, a smoke or incense of some side before some kind before a an image of Baal, and the child was passed through this, as if to say we are ceremonially dedicating this child and its life to Baal. So it wasn't particularly evil, obviously apostate and very much against uh, and, and uh, a sign of apostasy to, to God and his commands. So the first commandment forbids having any other gods before God. And the second is a commandment against the worship of idols. And there's a promise attached that if you do, it's not just you, it's your children to the third and fourth generation. Now, of course, there's also a positive promise for those who submit to God. He shows mercy. The reason I thought that there would be a parallel to this time in Judah's history and America specifically is we see lots of things falling apart. Your father called it the death of humanism that humanism can't prop itself up past a certain point. And so would you say that things like abortion or things like legitimizing activities and practices that are contrary to God's word are examples of Baal worship? Yes, I would, because they are you're sacrificing, you're giving up obedience to God and especially when you 
give your child over to these practices and to these powers, these forces around you, that you're, you're basically conceding that power as a greater power than thus saith the Lord. Right. And so, yes, you are, you are giving something very powerful away that you ought to be protecting and keeping within the bounds of God's law. So all you have to do is read Jeremiah and realize he didn't have an easy job and he didn't have too much trouble telling God, I don't have an easy job. I don't want to do this anymore. Nobody's listening to me. And God said, you're right. They're not going to listen to you. And he was deemed a false prophet. And the other prophets who were saying, don't worry, God will never do any of this stuff to Jerusalem. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He's a bit of a downer. And he's so bad that we want to kill him. So God's message to Jeremiah came true. And these other false prophets didn't come true. Do we have similar false prophecy today that takes our attention off what God is really saying? Yes, I think it's it's always going, has been true. Not only Jeremiah had that, Ezekiel had it. Uh, Ezekiel was his life overlapped that of uh, Jeremiah. Ezekiel, we know, as the prophet who was sent as a captive when Jerusalem fell, he was sent as a captive to uh, Babylon, and he was uh, a prophet to the people in Babylon. And one of his first problems was that people were getting reports that uh, there were some prophets who were saying, oh, this is going to be a short-lived thing. God's going to restore you very quickly. And yet the prophecy was that it was going to take 70 years before that happened. And so even after the fall of Jerusalem, there were false prophets who were spreading these kind of things. And I think it's comparable to a lot of people who use pulpits to proclaim not just error, but heresy, all sorts of false doctrines. So uh, uh, the the I, I think in many ways, uh, a lot of modern churches are comparable to the state of religion in uh, Judah at the time of Jeremiah, just before their collapse. All right. So as I'm reading through the book, as I'm listening to your sermons, a question that came up for me was, well, how are people supposed to know the difference between false prophets and a true prophet? And, you know, it's easy to blame the people in charge, the kings or the rulers or the princes. But I found myself sort of like, well, if I was there, how would I know which is the false prophet and which is the true prophet? And as I dwelt on that question, I realized that God gave his law to the people. And so a prophet who confirms what God says in his law should be listened to. And one who doesn't should be deemed a false prophet. So the people aren't off the hook on this. We can't just blame, well, what did they know? The false prophet told them this, and that's what they're supposed to do. It's as though God says, no, 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 you're responsible for what you believe. I gave the commandment to you, not to your rulers, to filter them down to you. Yes, and if you as you read through the prophets, minor and 
major, which is a good chunk of the Old Testament, maybe half. Their approach was uh, fairly consistent. When they would uh, preach to the people, they would say, look at the, look at the culture around you. Look at this problem, that problem. It's because you have, uh, widows and orphans being dispossessed by, from their properties. You have this injustice and that injustice. And their point was, this wouldn't exist if you had been keeping God's law. God's law would have protected the widows and orphans. You wouldn't have worthless money if you didn't have these false weights and measurements. In one area after another, he pointed out the social problems. He didn't start by, you know, talking about their theology. I mean, that was pretty obvious. He, he started saying, the problems you have around you are of your own making because you're not obeying God. And so the problem was very much with the people. Their disobedience revealed that they were not being faithful to God. And this is why when we talk about something like Christian reconstruction, or where do we go from here? The whole idea of God's law is very important because you can't, there's nowhere to go unless you have a guideline. What should we be doing different? How would things have to be if, if uh, we wanted to avoid the judgment of God? Without the law of God, you really don't have a standard. So theonomy, God's law, is really the, the blueprint for how obedient people move forward in terms of faithfulness to God. But that ends up being such a hard sell nowadays because of generations, I think, of God loves you and he wants the best for you and receive Jesus and your life gets better. Very little talking about God's law remains the same and there are going to be blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. And so the people who want to establish theonomy as the only solid rule for being holy often get the same sort of treatment that the prophets got. Oh, that's old. Yes, that was applicable then, but now we have a new way, although they don't exactly say what that new way is. Right. It's uh, um, when you have a very limited salvation that it's and it's basically that a salvation that's just saving you from hell that will take effect when you die then you're left with very little guideline and that that when you when society has problems the weakness of that kind of a christianity becomes readily apparent they don't have any answers i always like francis shaper's uh, question on bestseller book he had how how then shall we live but he didn't really have a, a solid answer for it. He was good analyzing what was wrong, but he didn't have a solid answer for how do we live. And see, that's a whole issue of theonomy is this is how God expects the believer to live. This is what faithfulness looks like. And there are blessings for faithfulness. So we've created so many problems that one area after another in our culture is now at its breaking point. Things can look pretty ugly when institutions and relationships in a culture start breaking down. And that's what we're seeing now. 
Yeah. So I teach um, a history class to high school students, and I always ask them to ask questions. What questions do you have? And one student asked me, she said, when Solomon was going south and not doing what he should have done, what responsibility did the people have? And too often, even today, people throw up their hands and say, what can you do? This is what's legal. This is what the government says. But there is a remedy right in God's law to exhort, reprove, and then take a stand against apostasy, whether it's in families or churches, civil government. Would you agree that God expects us, no matter what the odds look like of succeeding, to faithfully say, thus saith the Lord. Yes, because the, the problems didn't go away when Solomon died or any other evil, you know, king whose actions were, you know, problematic. And we see that particularly, like we mentioned with Josiah, when after Josiah's reforms, the people immediately returned to all of their errors because they hadn't changed. And so to, to blame these things on the past or the a few evil kings who allowed certain things is missing the point that the people actually were embracing some of this evil wholeheartedly until by the time of uh, Jeremiah, they were really angry and they were blaming God for all of their problems. And their return to God was really, they thought what their problem was. And, when you have someone who's an alcoholic or a drug addict or has a gambling addiction or, or something or just their behavior is definitely a problem. And until they realize what the problem is and it's in them and they have to change their way, not a lot's going to happen. As long as they excuse their actions and saying, I should be succeeding despite my behavior. How can I work through this without giving up these things? Then nothing's going to change. Exactly. And that That's what we see in so much of our culture today. The people, particularly in the church, many people are not willing to demand that things have to be different. And it has to begin with us. And I think a lot of people would rather hear the nice message that says, don't worry, when it really gets bad, you won't be here. When these very same people, especially I live in Silicon Valley, how many people do you think attend churches who work for tech companies who are censoring, who are promoting things that aren't true? How many people's investment portfolio is actually dealing with companies that use aborted fetal cells and are sanctioning the continued end of preborn life? How many people benefit off of unjust weights and measures. So when the pulpit doesn't call people to repentance for the practical stuff and just stays in the abstract, don't you think they're denying the personhood of God as though God doesn't really care what we do as long as we smile and seem nice? Yeah, when when we think it's about us and how we can uh, prosper, we're basically looking for a prosperity cult, a fertility cult. You know, the fertility cult involved some some real evil. It actually involved ritualized prostitution, which was one of its draws, I'm sure. It sanctified 
fornication, basically. But whenever we say what's in it for us, what kind of, uh, you know, religious behavior works best for me, rather than focus on this is what God demands, we're going to have problems and we're, we're not going to address them. We basically have to believe that, that our faith is, involves a way of life. And until we see the faith as, as a way of life and that it's, it's a world and life view, then we're not going to change. Our families not, won't be changing and our churches aren't going to be changing. We won't even have a witness as things fall apart. And I think we, we do see that more. And I see obviously when my father started writing, for instance, in the late fifties about Christian education, boy, he got some real kickback and there's less of that today. And, of, and as you know, even, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people were really poo-pooing the idea of, of, of homeschooling or, or as a necessity. They, they're very slow to come around and a lot of damage has been done because Christians have been very slow to come around to the idea that we have to do things differently. Even if we, you know, we don't change perfectly sometimes and and we kind of have to find our ways when we have to find an alternative such as in education, but uh, we have to make a start. And until they're even willing to make a start, nothing will, will really change. So when um, we republished the Institutes of Biblical Law, you wrote a, um, I guess it was a preface to it, and we turned it into a little booklet called Faith and Obedience. And really, that's the bottom line. If we receive the faith, this is what God says, this is what's true. Our only response needs to be obedience and then leave the outcome in God's hands, because he does promise blessings for faithfulness. We don't get to say, okay, this is the list of things I want. I'll be faithful. I'll be obedient if you give me this. Our duty, the purpose of why we were created, was to be faithful and obedient, correct? Right. Faith requires faithfulness, and that's really what theonomy is about. A lot of people want to direct a discussion of theonomy, God's law, to our view of government. And exactly what's the government's role vis-a-vis the, you know, the, the law of God. And that's a secondary question. The primary question is, does it apply to us, to believers? And to what extent are we obeying it? And oh, it will be a bottom-up change. It won't be a top-down change because Josiah's day proved that you could have a king that's being deemed by God as faithful and true and praised for it, but the people didn't have the change in their heart, and so they reverted back to what he had done away with. Well, yeah, which tells us how thoroughly ingrained it was now in their culture by the time Josiah tried to reform things. It, it was uh, very much a part of who they were. So it wasn't just the fact that they had a few uh, temples here and there or uh, a few shrines here and there, or they had a few false practices. It was thoroughly ingrained. The people believed in this this cult, and they had in their minds demoted Jehovah to just another Baal, and they preferred the alternative to Jehovah. 
I know a lot of believers are very upset with the media, with the civil government and everything else, with the medical industrial complex, things like that. But I look at it as God has allowed things to get more intense, more unpleasant. And just like for the people that we see throughout history, whether it was in Egypt, whether it was then when they were in captivity in Babylon, which is why we should read the Bible and look at our forebears, is if that's what it takes for people to know that God is the Lord, then it's a blessing. And that when people stop worrying about, well, I'll be obedient if God changes the unpleasant things in my life, we should be saying, Whatever God determines is going to be just because we start off with that, that God is just, and he doesn't have to live up to our expectations. We need to be obedient to his word. And many people, and I'm sure you've seen it, you know, in the last couple of years, now homeschooling makes more sense. The same people who would have ridiculed it 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So as things get more evidence of what it looks like when evil rules, God uses that in many cases to get people's attention. Yes. When people don't listen and don't pay attention when God is judging, or if they even deny it's the judgment of God and they just say it's circumstances, then they're really going to fall off the edge. And that's what happened to uh, Jeremiah's generation that ended up in the people that ended up fleeing to Egypt. They were told, the prophet told them, that God says, if you go to Egypt, you're not going to come back. You're going to die there. And that was the end of those people that had blamed God. They had seen the fall of Jerusalem as it was prophesied, and they still blamed Jehovah for all their problems. Yeah, that shows how how how, how evil they really were. And so... They responded to God's judgment with bitterness, anger towards God, and they refused to change. And they were going to offer their prayers and their incense to the deities now in Egypt. And so God let them die there. And And I would uh, say along with that, there are people who don't read, don't suggest believers read Deuteronomy 28 or Leviticus 26 because they're both very similar. Do this. This is evidence of blessing. Don't do what I say. This is evidence of cursing. And what do they do? They provide a narrative that says God will rescue us. And when I'm talking to people who believe this, my question is, is God going to rescue you because of your obedience? Or, be, or he thinks you're attractive, or he really needs you on his team. And so obedience doesn't even become part of the equation. I, I cringe when I hear the the hymn or the song, God Bless America, because what I think of whenever I hear that phrase or that song is why? Why should God bless America? Right. What are we doing that would invite his blessing? rather than his judgment. So we're inviting his judgment and then asking him to bless us. It's, it, it's you know, we don't pay attention to God and then we ask for his blessing on us. It's the way a lot of Christians today act. They'll, they'll invoke the name of God, but in, in reality, they pay little attention to what God really 
requires of them. I imagine that if we could interview the people of Judah, they felt they would be rescued somehow. And they didn't do personal reflection and say, okay, what must we need to change? Because if you believe that God's in control of all things, then it doesn't matter what your enemies are doing. You don't have to outmaneuver them. That's when you're really on the wrong track. What you have to do is be faithful to the one who can kill the body and the soul, not the ones who could just go ahead and injure you or kill the body. Right. All right. Well, thanks, Mark. I hope this gives some uh, insight and maybe a method by which for people to read through the prophets. And I would highly recommend going to calcedon.edu and looking up the various sermon albums of your sermons on the prophets, because I believe you covered most of them, if not all of them. And you didn't do it quickly in the sense of, okay, we'll do three sermons on this. You go through most every chapter of various prophets. And I would say it's well worth the time because suddenly a book of the Bible that might have seemed confusing and I don't really know why I have to read this becomes extremely relevant, which is, I imagine, why you preached on them. Right. And if people don't want to listen to uh, the sermons, we just published a book of sermons my dad had done on Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah. And it's really some of his best stuff, I think. I think he was really, I, I think his some of his most amazing stuff was when he was in a sort of a teaching mode. And these are definitely more of a Bible teaching mode. Yes. So I'd recommend that. Those that book is available at calcedonstore.com. But for those who might not know it, almost everything that Calcedon has for sale, you can also read it or listen to it at no charge, not to dissuade you from buying the material. But the important part is we feel at Calcedon that you understand what God requires and allow you to be the prophetic voice that all believers are called to be. Because a prophet correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, isn't just somebody who predicts the future other than to confirm. You want to know your future? Oh, the wages of sin is death. There's a prediction for you, and you don't have to do much more than speak God's thoughts after him, correct? Yes. The prophet was really one who spoke God's words to the people, and sometimes that was about the future, but sometimes it was preaching God's judgment or God's warning or God's truth in some way. All right. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us today. As always, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.